Good morning, everyone. I'll be very honest with you. I feel, frankly, terrified. And I'll tell you why. It's not because you're not nice people. I'm sure you're lovely people. But worship here is very, very different to our church, which is Christ's church. We're only half a mile away down the road, but worship is ever so different. I'll tell you a couple of things. Firstly, I haven't got a nice pulpit enclosing me. I feel terribly exposed. (laughs) Shall I tell you something else? Never, ever in my entire life have been able to click. I just can't do it. I just can't do it. I'm a failure when it comes to that. Anyway, I trust that as we study God's word together, we are going to learn together. So let's pray. Lord, it's been good to worship you in different ways. It's been good to have fun together. It's been good to sing your praises. But now, Lord, we want to be quiet. Now, Lord, we want to be a bit more serious. We want to concentrate. We want to apply your mind. And we pray that you'll bless us as we do so. In the name of Christ. Amen. Now, we're worshipping together in a Baptist church. And I'm a Baptist minister. But one of the things that Baptist Christians probably aren't very interested in, aren't very good at, is saints. Now, we've probably got some respect for some great Baptist preachers. There's people like the great preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon, whose picture should appear as if by a miraculous moment in a moment. But it didn't. (laughs) Next picture, please. So we've got people like him. We've got people like Martin Luther King. We've got the missionary pioneer, William Carey. That's Spurgeon. And in a moment, we're going to get Carey, who's the next picture. There we are. And if we're really keen on history, you might go back another couple of centuries to the people who started up the Baptist movement, people like Thomas Helwes and John Smith. And you've probably never heard of half of them. And when it comes to historical saints, well, we probably have heard of St. George, we've probably heard of St. Nicholas, we've probably heard of St. Swithin, you know, the Bishop of Winchester, he's supposed to make it rain for 40 days without stopping. I think he's working overtime at the moment. And probably you've never heard of some wonderful saints like this one. This is St. Felix. This is St. Thursey. The next one will be St. Sed. And the next one is St. Botolf. You've probably never heard of them. But you know, they did more than anyone else, probably, to spread the gospel in East Anglia. And you can probably guess where St. Felix lived around about the mid-600s. He covered the ground from Felixto. And that's where he arrived from France, because he was French. He went up to Dunwich, he went up to Beckles, he went up the Stour Valley to Sudbury, he went up the Lark Valley to Bury St. Edmunds, he went to Swaffham, he went to Yarmouth. He really was a great evangelist. He was a very busy man. Now, why is it that Baptists aren't particularly interested in the saints? And I think there's a couple of reasons. One is that they're old. We tend to be pragmatic people. We look to the future. We want to do mission in the modern world. We don't want to be tied down in the past. And of course, there's a great deal of virtue in that. But actually, looking back at history can be useful because it stops you making mistakes. And the other reason why we don't do saints is, of course, because we don't like the Catholic idea of praying to God through saints. We say, no, 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 we come to Jesus. That's what's important. Jesus has done everything necessary to pave the way. But having said that, there is a reason why we should look back at the lives of great Christians, because we can be inspired by them. We can learn for their example. 
We can learn from their blunders where they got things wrong. We can learn about their experience of God. We can be encouraged by the way that God has used lots of different sorts of people to do his work. And one place, of course, where you can particularly look into the Bible is the New Testament. We can look at the saints of all, Peter, Paul, John, Philip, very diverse people, but they can all teach us a lot about God. And then there's other people. They're just anonymous people. They make a fleeting appearance and then they vanish. And perhaps we identify with them even better than with these great giants of faith. And of course, it's true of the Old Testament as well. So we're going to look at one New Testament saint this morning. And if you know your Bible, you'll know that the word saint actually is used of all Christians. We're all saints in it together. And I've chosen this person. Actually, I'll tell you why. I was looking at the calendar and his saint's day in the Catholic Church was last Thursday. But I think we can learn a lot from him. The man I'm thinking of is Barnabas. And Barnabas was a stalwart of the early church. Obviously, we don't know what he looked like. He was a companion of Paul, a very different sort of person. And there's one thing I particularly like Barnabas. It's this. He wasn't called Barnabas at all. His name was Joseph. But the church called him Barnabas because apparently Barnabas means son of encouragement. So just imagine that someone gave you that nickname. It's a rather wonderful nickname to uh, have. So we're going to take a quick journey through the book of Acts. And we start in chapter 4. And in Acts chapter 4, these are the very earliest days of the church. Now Barnabas was a Levite. Not yet, we haven't got there. Barnabas was a Levite who originally hailed from Cyprus. He was actually a cousin of Mark who wrote the gospel. It's possible that Barnabas was one of those 3,000 people who was converted on the day of Pentecost. We don't know. It could have even been that Barnabas was someone who knew Jesus, had heard his ministry, had crossed swords with him. We don't know. It could be that Barnabas was already one of that outer ring of disciples, the 120, not the 12, who we know existed before Pentecost. We don't know the details. But Barnabas clearly established himself as a very outstanding Christian very early on in the history of the church. And we know, in fact, that he was even prepared to put his money was, because he was one of those people who sold their possessions and gave it to the church. He sold a field, and he put the proceeds at the apostles' disposal. And we're actually told that he did that. I don't know why. Perhaps that he made a particularly large gift. I think it's more likely he was particularly respected and well-known. So I'd like to take you through three incidents in Barnabas' life, which I think can teach us more about the sort of person he was. And the first comes in Acts chapter 9, which is shortly after Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus. And I'm sure you all know that story. Here's Saul. He's this zealot for Jewish orthodoxy. He's the arch-persecutor of the church, and he's struck down on the road to Damascus by this amazing vision of Jesus. And he's immediately converted to follow Christ. And we know that after a few days' recuperation in Damascus, after a visit by a disciple named Ananias, what does he do? Paul starts preaching, or Saul starts preaching the gospel to the Jews. And lots of people start listening to Saul, and people start turning to Jesus. And of course, what happens is the synagogue leaders in Damascus, they're not very happy with Saul because he suddenly changed sides. And they think that talking about Jesus anyway is blasphemous. They see their power being threatened. So what happens? They try and get rid of Saul, but he escapes. He's lowered down outside the walls in a basket. He arrives in Jerusalem and he attempts to join the church there. 
But this is where Saul's troubles continue. You can see why. Here's this man. When the apostles and the Christians in Jerusalem had last seen him, what's he trying to do? He'd been trying to round them all up and kill them. In fact, he was the man who held the killer's coats while Stephen was being stoned to death. But now Saul's reappeared in Jerusalem. He's saying, I'm not the man I used to be. I've encountered Jesus. I've come over to your side. And the Jerusalem Christians say, "Uh uh-oh. They're a bit suspicious of him. They probably suspect some kind of plot. What if Saul really has an ulterior motive? What if he's trying to infiltrate the church so he can turn its leaders into the authorities? They keep him at arm's length. But there's one man... He listens to his story. There's one man, he believes Saul's story. There's one man, he takes them to the apostles. Who is that? Well, you know the answer. It's our friend Barnabas. So why did Barnabas have greater discernment spiritually than the other Christians? Was it a question that he was prepared to take the time to hear Saul rather than immediately jumping to a negative conclusion? I don't know. Was he just more ready to believe that someone like Saul could really be converted? I don't know. Was he a sort of person who had a more generous and trusting personality than anyone else? I don't know. There's all sorts of factors. Did he know God better? I don't know. But I think there's a wonderful story here. Because here's Barnabas. He knows Saul. He knows his reputation. He knows he's effectively a killer. And yet he's prepared to say, okay, I really can believe that he's changed. I really can believe that God has done a work in his life. What do we do when people come to church and say they've met Jesus? Are we a bit suspicious? Do we hold them at arm's length? Probably not. But if they're scruffily dressed, or perhaps that matter if they're very smooth talkers, We don't quite trust them at first. We put our wallets to one side. We make sure that no one's going to fiddle with them. And perhaps Jesus, sorry, Barnabas was following Jesus' example. Perhaps he was showing us perhaps a rather more godly way, a more trusting way of engaging with folk who say they've changed. That's the first thing. Barnabas is this man who's prepared to take Saul's conversion at face value rather than hold him at arm's length. So let's go on to the second bit. Because this wasn't the end of Saul's association with Barnabas. And of course, Saul soon becomes Paul, who is the major character in much of the New Testament. Two chapters further on in the book of Acts, we find that there are some Greek-speaking Jewish Christians. I know that's complicated. There are some Greek-speaking Jewish Christians. They fled to Antioch, which is up sort of near Turkey, and they're spreading the message of Jesus there. And these, of course, were Barnabas' own people. That was the background he came from. And so when the Jerusalem apostles heard what's going on, when they heard about this new move of God, they were a little bit suspicious, and they said, we'd better send Barnabas to go and find out what's going on. Is it kosher? So Barnabas goes, and Barnabas listens, and Barnabas evaluates, and his considered opinion is, yes, what's happening up there in Antioch, it's got nothing to do with what's been going on in Jerusalem, it's not being planned in any way, it's not the strategic plan of the church, but yes, it is a work of God. But Barnabas is also pretty sure that this infant church group there in Antioch, and you can see it there near the top of the picture, it needs some good teaching, so he needs some help for the task. So what does he do? Barnabas could have 
sent an email, well, perhaps not, but he could have sent a message back to Jerusalem saying, come on, Peter, come on, someone like you, we need some help here for the teaching. He doesn't. He goes much closer at hand. He goes the other way. He goes to Tarsus, where he knows Paul is. Remember Paul? He's been the persecutor of the church. Now Barnabas says, we need you as a mature Christian. Come and be my assistant. Come and teach this church. And we're told that for a whole year, these two men work together. And so Barnabas has obviously got enormous confidence in Paul, the former persecutor. No one else perhaps has, even at this stage, but Barnabas is prepared to give him that responsibility. It almost seems as if the Jerusalem church had forgotten about him. They'd sidelined him. Barnabas had kept in contact. And that brings us on to another incident. You see, here in Antioch, The work wasn't going smoothly. It provoked a huge disagreement, which could have meant the end of the whole Christian movement. Because back in Jerusalem, basically, the Christians were Jewish people who'd been converted to Christ. But it was still a sect within Judaism. But at Antioch, it wasn't just Jewish people who were being converted. People from pagan backgrounds were coming to Christ. And that's absolutely fine, of course, because people, we believe, from all backgrounds can turn to Christ. There's a suspicion that the Jewish Christians were a bit snooty about the pagan Christians. But what put about cat among the pigeons was this. Up in Antioch, the Gentile Christians, they were being told, you don't have to become a Jew to become a Christian. You don't have to follow the Jewish laws anymore. You don't have to follow the Jewish rules and regulations. You can follow Christ as you are. But a group of Judean Christians from Jerusalem, they went up to Antioch, and they were absolutely horrified for this. They say, these Gentile Christians, they're not doing it right. They're not following the Jewish laws. They're Christians, but they're not like us. They're not being circumcised. They're not coming into the fold. And to them, that was absolutely appalling. Something had to be done. Everyone knew Jesus had been Jewish. So, of course, new Christians from any background had to follow the Jewish laws, didn't they? And these Judeans believed that if you didn't follow the Jewish laws as a Christian, God wouldn't accept you. But the Antioch Christians didn't agree with this. And Paul in particular, he stood up against these people, these Judaizers. They were highly persuasive, but he said, no, 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 we are free in Christ. And Barnabas, after a bit of a wobble, he said the same. And the argument drags on for some time. As a Christian, do you follow the Jewish law? Don't you follow the Jewish law? It wasn't going to be resolved in Antioch. So there was only one thing they had to do. They had to appeal to higher authority. They decided to go to Jerusalem, take the problem there. Now, when these people from Antioch went to Jerusalem, they thought they were on a hiding to nothing. They're going to talk to the apostles. But the apostles, they were Jews. They were surely going to side with their fellow Judeans. They weren't going to listen to these Antioch Christians. They weren't interested in it at all. But Paul and Barnabas and some others, they were determined to have a go. So a hugely important conference was held. Whether it looked like that, I don't quite know. But we read about it in Acts chapter 15. Well, I'm not going to go into the details of what's happened. You can read it for yourselves. But what took place was rather surprising because the Holy Spirit actually worked in a very mysterious way. You see, Barnabas and Paul, they believed they had seen God working up there in Antioch. They believed that those Gentiles were truly converted, Jewish law or not. And they thought that they were going to be the only people putting up that view. They thought they were going to be in a minority, but they weren't. Because they were supported by Peter. 
Now, Peter, he'd changed. He'd had a vision of God once, which said, yeah, 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 anyone can come to Christ. They were supported by James. James was a really conservative leader in the church. They were all people who are not going to see things as we did. James is going to be the one who stacks up for tradition and doing things the Jewish way, but he didn't. And I think it was his James's backing that sealed things. After all, he'd be one of the people who'd been with Jesus from the first. And his words carried a lot of weight. So a compromise was made. Have you ever had a compromise in a church meeting? You have a discussion, you have an argument, you have a debate, and somehow what you end up with is something that actually neither of you really thought you'd end up with. That's what happened here. A letter was sent to Antioch. It said to the Jewish Christians, please, please, don't eat certain foods which Jews don't like, that they're not allowed to eat, because it makes them very upset. And it said, please keep good morality. The big issue, circumcision, wasn't mentioned at all, never in the letter. And this letter, who delivered it? Well, who took it back? Who were going to be the postman? Paul and Barnabas, although they didn't take it alone. And the crisis is over. And they've reached a decision which the whole church can more or less accept. And there must have been a great deal of rejoicing back in Antioch when they got there. So we see that Barnabas and Paul, they've been through a lot together. Here's Barnabas supporting Paul after his conversion when everyone else was frightened of him. Here's Barnabas looking for help in that church at Antioch and asking Paul to come from Tarsus and teach them. Here's Paul and Barnabas together. They've been in Jerusalem. They've been through this controversy and they've weathered that particular storm. There's something important I've missed out. It's this. They'd also been on a pioneer missionary journey together. If you go back to Acts chapter 13, you read that the leaders of the Antioch church, they were fasting and praying. They were saying, Lord, lead us as a church. And when they were doing that, we're told that God's word came to them very clearly. And God says, I want Paul and Barnabas to leave this church and take the gospel elsewhere. Now, I don't know about you, but... I think that must have shaken that church. How are they going to do without their two most senior leaders if God whisked them off to do missionary work in other places? But to their credit, they didn't refuse. They obeyed. They did what was right. Paul and Barnabas were released from their commitments. They set sail for Cyprus, the land of Barnabas' ancestors. It was all very exciting. And what's very interesting as you read through this missionary journey you find that the pecking order between Paul and Barnabas starts subtly changing. Barnabas is the senior partner. Barnabas has been a Christian far longer than Paul. Barnabas might even have heard Jesus at first hand. He was certainly in the church from the very start. But eventually, as you read through the book of Acts, it's Paul who becomes much more prominent in the missionary task. But there's a problem. You know, you sometimes think that in the early church, everything was all hunky-dory. There were never any problems. They just swept along in a wonderful tide of Holy Spirit love. It weren't like that. They had the same sorts of problems we had. And a problem had been sown. Because Paul and Barnabas, they didn't travel alone. They traveled as part of a group. And one of the people who came with them was Barnabas's cousin, Mark. Yeah, that same Mark, Mark who wrote the gospel. A lot younger, I think. 
And in fact, Mark was a sort of secretary. He was a sort of travel agent. It was he who arranged the food and the travel and the lodgings for this little band of missionaries along the way. But they got to a place called Perga, which is in southern Turkey, and something happened. For whatever reason, Mark quits and goes back home. Paul and Barnabas continue. But later on, when they're about to start a second missionary journey, this incident rears its ugly head. Because Barnabas says, yep, we'll take take, uh, Mark with us again. And Paul says, oh no, we won't. He let us down last time. And Barnabas clearly thinks that Mark had a very good reason for abandoning the first journey. He should be given a second chance. But Paul takes a harsher line. He probably thinks, well, Barnabas, he's sticking up for his cousin. It's a family thing. He wants him to come with him. He's colouring his opinion. And we're told that Paul and Barnabas have, in the authorised King James Version, a contention which was sharp. In other words, they had an absolute, all-out, flaming row. Paul says, over my dead body, we take Mark with us. And Barnabas says, we must take him. And what happens? They fall out. The two men turn their back on each other. Paul takes someone else called Silas with him and goes off to Asia Minor, while the other two, Barnabas and Mark, return to Cyprus. So, you know, Christian leaders always agree, well, actually, they don't. Even such spiritual men as Paul and Barnabas, they really could not see eye to eye on this issue. The interesting thing is that's really the last we hear of Barnabas. He sort of fades out of the picture after that. Presumably, he lived out the rest of his life as a Christian leader back in Cyprus or back in Antioch. And, of course, we know that Paul continued to travel around the uh, Mediterranean uh, region. He was an apostle. He was finally arrested. He was taken to Rome. He almost certainly died a martyr's death. I just wonder if Barnabas had been deeply hurt by that dispute with Paul. I wonder if Barnabas had decided this church-planting lark, it isn't really for me. Someone better can do it. I don't know. But certainly what is true is here you have two men, both Christian leaders, but with very, very different personalities. Paul's this single-minded, dedicated evangelist. He's definitely a workaholic. I almost think he's a bit fanatical. He brooks no disagreement. He sees every issue in absolute primary colours, in black and white, if you like. Barnabas, he's more the appeaser. He sees hope in the most unpromising person. He champions their cause. He sees things in shades of colour. He just wants everyone to get along together. And so even though they were both Christians, who both really wanted to serve Jesus, the two men just couldn't work together. And I have to be very honest, if it had been me, golly, I'd have gone on much better with Barnabas than I would have done with Paul. So then, how do we sum up this man, Barnabas? What sort of person is he like? To me, he comes over as someone who's trusting, someone who's generous, someone who's peace-loving. He was prepared to believe that Paul had really met with Jesus and been converted. Other people weren't. He was prepared to give him the benefit of the doubt. He was prepared to accept John Mark's excuses for letting them down, give them another go. Paul wasn't. He'd blotted his copybook for once and for good as far as he was concerned. When it came to controversy, like that controversy over the Jewish laws, Barnabas wobbled a bit. He found it quite difficult to stand his ground and not be swayed by stronger voices. 
But with a bit of backing, like from Paul, he was prepared to stand up for a cause. It could be that in debates, Barnabas was less strident than Paul. That might have gained him allies rather than enemies. And it's clear that Barnabas was committed to the growth of the church, to Christian teaching. And perhaps his temperament was better suited to being a pastor than a pioneer missionary. And perhaps ultimately, Barnabas was slightly more of a follower than an out-and-out leader. If he'd been on a ship, perhaps he'd have made a better first mate than a captain. I don't know. What I want to say is this. Barnabas comes over as an intensely human person. Barnabas comes over as a person who wasn't really interested in himself. His ministry is all about encouraging others. His ministry is all about serving the church. His ministry is all about bringing people to Christ and growing the church. You can call him a saint if you like. It's up to you. But what I say is, his is an example that we'd all want to copy in our own lives. Let's pray.